morning. Oh, that sounds like a post-football morning. Good morning. Yeah, that sounds like Argentina won. So some of you uh, saw me limp a bit and uh, would be wondering uh, what happened. Uh, one of the brothers gave a very good suggestion. Why don't you wear a T-shirt that says it's the ligament? So yeah, I twisted my knee, um, and uh, you can just pray that uh, over the next few weeks I will have quick recovery. Um, thank you, Nikki, for reading from the passage. Um, it's a beautiful uh, section that we are entering right now, and uh, I just want to say that um, um, you know this particular portion. All the four gospel writers have uh, recorded it. And they've recorded it from different perspectives. It's four different people led by God's Spirit looking at exactly the same incident that happened, from di- but from different angles. So you'll see different details come in as you read from Matthew chapter 21, from Mark chapter 11, and from John chapter 12. But we'll be focusing on Luke 19. I'll fill in the details, right? So we're not flipping Pages, we'll stick to this passage, but I'll fill in the details. But if you hear me speak about more than one donkey, you know that it's recorded somewhere else, right? Uh, But as the Berians, you can go and later on check if I was adding something of my own, yeah? Um, But what's that missing puzzle, right? What's that missing puzzle? You know, while God's word has been given to us in full sufficiency for what we need, Yet, there are details that we will only get to know when we see him face to face in heaven. Yeah? So, what we have is complete for us. All that we need for life and for godliness is what we read. But yet, we also read that knowledge will be perfect and complete when we see him face to face. Yeah? So, there's a lot that we will not know this side of heaven. And we should be okay with that. God has told us everything that we need. There's a map that I've uh, put in the notes that you have with you. Uh, And this gives us a bit of uh, a background to where we are, not just uh, in the text, but also geographically, right? You'd remember that we're in a section where Jesus set forth towards Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint, determined to travel to Jerusalem. He'd been to Jerusalem many times before that. Uh, The gospel writers, in fact, um, uh, particularly John, uh, in his account, mentions at least four times in his adult life that Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem. He was uh, uh, a Jew, so he would be traveling to Jerusalem for various festivals. And then it was also the house of God. It was his house, right? So he would go often there. And of course, as a child, he would have gone many more times. But this It's a very determined journey towards Jerusalem, as we will see. Uh, He's been in Bethany, if you see towards the bottom left. He's been in Bethany a few weeks ago. And that's where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then he goes up towards Galilee. That's actually north of the slide, right? So it's not in the slide. He goes towards the Sea of Galilee. And if you see that thin line, which is the River Jordan, it's actually connecting the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. So the Sea of Galilee is outside the slide and he goes to that region. He spends a few weeks there teaching and that's the time uh, that he would have taught what uh, Raventh covered last week. And then he comes down south from Galilee. He crosses over the Jordan towards Jericho. That's where you see that first arrow from Ephraim towards Jericho. And then he comes down again. Jericho is where he healed two blind beggars. Some gospel uh, writers have actually mentioned only one of them, the name of one of them. This is what I'm telling, talking about perspective, right? Two were healed, but a few writers only mention about Bartimaeus, right? You would remember that name. And Bartimaeus also gets saved. Maybe that's why his name is mentioned in particular. He also brings salvation to Zacchaeus. Right? That's a beautiful account of a person who was a tax collector, lived a life that everybody knew was sinful and had a complete turnaround. And his 
life externally also changed right people could see the difference in his life and then he is proceeding if you see uh he's coming southward and then moving towards the west towards jerusalem which is about a 17 mile uh, journey he's not alone though this is the time of the passover so there is a big jewish crowd who's walking alongside him as he's walking more and more people are walking alongside right they are headed towards jerusalem but they're also very interested in listening to this person and gospel writers say that they were very keen to see both jesus and lazarus because he's a person that uh jesus had raised from the dead so in john uh we read in chapter 12 that he arrived in bethany 6 days before the passover right so he's just 6 days away from his crucifixion so this is the last journey of the lord and he knows it right so we got to keep that in context as we read uh the passage and understand what jesus mind would be going through and he's invited to a meal in bethany um matthew and mark describe about that meal uh and it's a meal where jesus would have really enjoyed because he is enjoying fellowship with his dear ones and he knows that very soon he will be all alone right so he's savoring that 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 time together with people who are close to him with mary and martha this was a home that he would go often to the bible says whenever he would be in that region and now there is lazarus also with them uh and and like i said people come out to see him they come out to see is is this man really alive lazarus so they want to see lazarus they want to see jesus and it says that the jewish people actually want to kill both now right because they want to kill jesus already they wanted to now they want to kill the proof of jesus's divinity of being somebody who can raise people from the dead um and then it says from there on so so we are in bethany right just a little before the passage that we are reading and from there on it's an ascent right so so they'll go upwards they'll go upwards cross bethpage which is about a mile from bethany and another mile from bethpage is jerusalem so if you uh, come to the passage that we are going to look at which is luke chapter 19 and verse 28 it starts like this after jesus had said this he went on ahead going up to jerusalem right so that's a geographical climb of about 4000 uh, feet up towards the hill uh of the mount of olives um but how does it start it says after jesus had said this so if you're doing our quiet times what should be the instant question after jesus had said what right and then you go back and you see what did jesus say before that so if you see luke chapter uh, the same chapter verse 11 you'll see that jesus is telling them a parable and jesus tells them this parable which is actually describing him and what will happen to him jesus speaks about a noble person who goes to a distant land to be coronated as and to be recognized as a king but the people there the subjects there they don't want him as a king they say we don't want you as a king but he eventually does get recognized as the king and we know that's what happened right jesus came to his own his own rejected him he goes into jerusalem and he is rejected right as the king i mean the way that people treat him as king is very different from the kind of king that he came to be we'll see that in the text but eventually on the cross of calvary it was written he is the king of jews right that was a human mockery a human proclamation but we know that he eventually went up to heaven to be uh, the king of kings to reign on high next to god the father and then the parable speaks about how this king comes back to to the place that he had left from because he had given responsibilities to people and he comes back to take account from them about what they did with what he had given to them and he rewards those who were faithful and he punishes those who had rejected him again a uh, a beautiful uh parable of how the lord jesus christ is going to come soon and how we ought to be faithful stewards of whatever responsibilities whatever resources that he has entrusted in our hands and also about a judgment that is to come so jesus says this parable he doesn't explain it he just uh he just talks about the parable and then it's actually going to happen that parable is going to come alive so 
and, and, and that's where we are here in this passage, right? He's proceeding from Bethany up the mountain to, to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what is ahead of him. He knows that there's going to be the rest of the six days of intense conflict, right? Emotional conflict. He will be, um, uh, he, he will be completely left alone, right? Uh, his, all his near and dear ones, everybody who he invested and in, spent time in will leave him, will reject him. He'll go through intense physical suffering during this time, a kind of suffering which uh, is the worst in human history. He would go through that kind of intense pain and suffering for no fault of his own. And he would go through intense spiritual suffering. Right? We've been speaking about that as we were worshipping. That he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The entire sin of humanity, including your and my sin, was heaped upon him. And that's what God the Father could not see. So he went through it. And, and Jesus knows that, that what is coming ahead over the next six days is this kind of intense emotional, physical and spiritual suffering. But still, he has set his face and he is moving aside, right? Uh, moving ahead. He heads up that mountain towards his death. Um, and it's, it's just two miles from now, right? But it's actually the end of a very long journey. The end of the journey of the Son of God who came down into this world, right? Came down as a, as a frail, vulnerable human baby, completely dependent on his mother, completely dependent on people around him, grew up in God's favor, sinless. And then over the, over the end of his, of his life here on this earth, the three and a half years, spent time in speaking about the coming kingdom of God and calling people to him, to salvation. And now he's going to uh, that last leg of his journey, the last two miles. But like I said, it's actually the end of a very, very long journey. And this is that last one, the last time that he is actually also going to Jerusalem uh, during the time of the Passover. The last time, not just for him, but also can be the last time for many Jews who will put their faith and trust in him. Because again, like we were reading from Hebrews during worship, there is no more sacrifice required after this. He came to be that final sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, right? Offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And he's now is going to be the culmination. He was called out by John in John chapter 1 as behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's what he is going now it's like I said the end of a journey that Luke tells us began in chapter 9 and verse 51. Right? We'll just quickly read that. 951. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out or set his face out for Jerusalem. So that's where it began this last segment and now he is there towards the end. Of, of that journey. And we read in the next verse, verse 29 of Luke 19, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead. So, um, like I said that um, Jesus has moved from Bethany and he's going towards Bethpage, Bethany and Bethpage, one mile apart, and then Bethpage and Jerusalem, another mile apart. And this is on the Mount of Olives, which is a high ridge about two miles long. And it's uh, covered with many olive trees. And, and that's where it gets it, uh, get its uh, name from. Um, and then ahead, he says, go to the village, is what Jesus tells them. Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Why? Why does the Lord need a donkey? Why does the Lord, who has been walking so many miles, the rest of the crowd is also walking, and in fact, the other gospel writers say that, he says that 
he needs it only for a short time so he's going to return it very soon why for a short while just to enter jerusalem does he need a donkey the reason is recorded in matthew chapter 21 and verse 4 he says matthew records in that same account he says that it was to fulfill a prophecy it was to fulfill a prophecy and you would say that oh uh, anyone could have said that right go and and get a donkey i mean in a village there will be many so what's the big deal about that right what's so prophetic about that but when you read this you see that jesus was very very precise in what he said he said just as you enter it so he spoke about the location where they, where they'll find the donkey uh in another passage we read in the uh, one of the other gospel writers writes that it is a donkey with a colt right so it's not just one he was very specific he said that it is something that no one had ever ridden and he also told the two disciples what to say in response to the question that they will be asked right so jesus was very very specific in what he was telling them and we'll see as we go through the passage uh, uh, different characteristics of jesus that come through different characteristics of the people around also that come through just as a suggestion for those who uh, think about how do i do my quiet time right three questions that you can ask any passage as you are doing your morning devotion right you can you can look at the passage and you can try to list out what all do i learn about god in this passage what do i learn about god what do i learn about jesus in this passage second question you can ask yourself from that passage what do i learn about people what do i learn about myself what do i learn about humans from this passage and finally you can put down what do you apply and that's what we will see here as well right we'll towards the end summarize but as you're going through if you note then you can put it down in your notes what do you learn about god or jesus what do you learn about humans uh, or yourself and then finally what do you apply um then we go ahead in verse 32 right they found it just as he had told them those who went uh, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them as they were untying the colt its owners asked them why are you untying the colt they replied the lord needs it right and mark adds that they let them go right so the people who who were there they actually let uh, them go and this is a prophecy which was fulfilled in very specific detail it's a prophecy like i said that matthew quotes but we can go to the prophecy specifically in zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 can you turn with me to zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 it's a prophecy made 500 years ago by prophet zechariah and it reads like this zechariah 99 rejoice greatly o daughter of zion which is reference to israel shout daughter of jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation gentle and riding on a donkey and look at the specificity on a colt the foal of a donkey right so this is the uh, prophecy that was given about the soon to come messiah how will this messiah enter jerusalem and jesus very specifically chose just that one entry point to fulfill that uh, uh, th- that prophecy and it was not unnoticed by the people around him they got what jesus was doing and who he was claiming to be because this was not the normal manner in which kings would arrive into a country right they would arrive as conquerors especially if they were coming to be coronated to a country which is not ruled by them they will come as conquerors they will come riding on chariots and horses but jesus chooses this in fulfillment to prophecy and also to symbolize the meekness uh, and and the humility with which he is coming this time right he comes in peace this time but there will be a time the bible says that the lord jesus christ will return and he will return symbolically on a horse right it says that he will return on a white horse revelation chapter 19 right you can uh read that beautiful um uh, chapter sometime later in its entirety but i'll just read out a few verses just so that there is that contrast in our mind about how actually the king of kings is going to finally come i'm reading revelation 19 from verse 11 onwards i saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true 
With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. But today, in this passage right now, he's coming riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? In peace, in humility, in meekness, like we sang. Uh, and then as people see this, right? Like I said, the symbolism doesn't miss them. They know who Jesus is claiming to be. And you see that in their reaction. Look at verse 35 uh, and 36. They brought it to Jesus through their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. People are spreading their cloaks on the road. Would any of you do that? Take off your jacket and put it on the road? No, you wouldn't, right? Would you, would you do it for somebody to walk on it? No, definitely not, right? Would you, would you put it for a donkey to walk on it? Eesh, you know, uh, you'll have to take it to the dry cleaners after that, right? But look at the kind, of, uh, uh, the kind of reaction that the crowd has here. They're taking off their cloaks, right? Their shawls and they're putting it on the road for the donkey on which this person is sitting to walk on. Why? Because they know who this person is claiming to be. And then you see that people are cutting branches from the fields. John specifically mentions Palm branches and we know that in some churches that's why you know they celebrate this as Palm Sunday although some theologians say that it could be Monday right but uh, but that's uh, uh, that's not relevant to what we are studying today uh, so they cut branches they are putting it on right they are essentially in today's uh, world they are rolling out the red carpet for him to come in they are treating him as royalty and there is palpable excitement the pilgrims from Galilee who are on their way to Jerusalem, right? And they would be traveling with their families. We read about children being there. Uh, Jesus uh, points out to them and says some things before this. Jesus points out to them later and also says that the children will uh, cry out and, and that they will praise. So, so, so people are just walking together as families and they are suddenly, when they see this, they are so excited, right? And then we read uh, ahead, when he came near the place, Verse 37, where the road goes down, right? So now he's reached the peak of Mount of Olives and he's going down towards the west, towards Jerusalem, right? Uh, so when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. So, so they've been putting all of these things uh, down on the road for, uh, for Jesus to enter in into Jerusalem. And as they see Jerusalem, they start uh, shouting out with, with loud voices. And, uh, uh, and the words used there are that, that you know, they're, they're using loud voices. They're joyfully praising God. Um, Matthew speaks about a crowd that was ahead of him. Uh, and there was a crowd behind him. John says that there were people who were in Jerusalem who get to know that something like this is happening and they rush out from the city. They rush out to, uh, to welcome him. So there's a lot of commotion that's happening. In fact, um, Matthew speaks about how people in the city who were new to all of this, they, um, they say they're asking, who is this and what is happening? Right, so, so, so there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of commotion, there's a lot of celebration that is happening. Um, and, um, and, and Luke records that it is, this excitement is because of the miracle that Jesus had done. You know, in Luke chapter 13, uh, so sorry, Luke chapter 3, we read about how the Jewish people were waiting expectantly for the Messiah. They were waiting expectant, expectantly for the Christ. So now when they see all of these things fulfill, 
they are very very excited and this is what they sing right um they say blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord right uh, this is from psalm 118 which is uh, an ascent uh, psalm you know these are uh, uh, from those uh, six uh, psalms which are there from uh, psalm 113 to psalm 118 which jewish people would chant as they would go to the annual passover festival right it's filled with thanksgiving and praise and petitions to god it also has a lot of messianic references about the messiah who is going to come and uh, Uh, what i have done is i've just put together what the four gospel writers record as different parts of the song that these people are singing it could have been longer than this but these are different sections that each gospel writer records so they're saying hosanna right which means save us o god hosanna to the son of david son of david a very clear messianic title it was only used for uh, the coming messiah in the old testament blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord so they are recognizing jesus as a king blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david now they're recognizing that this jesus they are saying will bring in the kingdom that was promised right the seed of david who would come and who would establish peace forever whose kingdom will never fail they're recognizing and saying that jesus is that person blessed is the coming king of our father david blessed is the king of israel peace in heaven and glory in the highest what the angels had sang when jesus was born they're repeating that peace in heaven and glory in the highest and then finally they say hosanna in the highest right so they are really really uh, excited that jesus is finally revealing himself publicly as their king right um, many of them had you know um, maybe recognize this here and there but right now jesus is showing it so clearly uh, that the person that they've been waiting for centuries is uh, he himself right so everything that jesus had said so far to clarify that he wasn't coming to establish a political kingdom they had either forgotten or they did not want to uh, think about that right or they might have thought that he's speaking about something else jesus had spoken so clearly that he is going to jerusalem to be crucified right but all of that they completely kept aside because suddenly they are in this frenzy of excitement that the operation that we've been going through is going to finally end and Jesus is going to come and rule so they had earthly deliverance in mind while Jesus we know had come to actually give spiritual deliverance right he had come as the savior of souls not the savior uh, from the roman uh, rule he had come to conquer sin and death and to reconcile people back to god uh, and we see the reaction of pharisees right the reaction of pharisees is that they are so upset they are livid uh, in verse 39 some of the pharisees in the crowd said to jesus teacher rebuke your disciples look at what they are saying about you stop them rebuke them because till now jesus had never accepted or or jesus had never allowed people to uh, publicly declare him as messiah so so they are saying stop them you know this is something that you've not you've never accepted till now so you have to stop them but look at jesus's response he doesn't stop the crowd from shouting in fact he tells the pharisees i tell you verse 40 if they keep quiet the stones will cry out right jesus doesn't stop the people from worshiping him he accepts their worship he accepts their shout of proclamation that he is that long awaited and the uh, and the messiah that was promised in the old testament that he is the one that god has promised as the savior to come the prophets that we read about uh, zechariah uh, the prophets that david spoke about that daniel spoke about that he is the one you know it's so important to note that up till this point jesus had never allowed this open public demonstration declaring him as messiah in fact whenever something like that would be brewing he would distance and pull himself out from there he would say that my time has not yet come uh, one particular passage that i'd like to read is john chapter 7 verse 1 and 8 you know just so we are able to see that contrast john chapter 7 verse 1 through 8 
After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Right? So he's been till now purposely staying away from this region, right? Because his time had not yet come to give up his life, right? And he knew that the Jews were waiting to take his life. Verse 2 But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, look at what Jesus' brothers are saying. Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Why do you want to hide yourself? Show yourself to the world. Like, let people know who you really are. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. You know, this is brothers giving Jesus advice. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus responds, therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you any time is right, right? But he said that the right time for me has not yet come. And then finally, again in verse 8, he says, Because for me, the right time has not yet come. But now, Jesus knows that it is the right time. It is the time for him to go into Jerusalem because he knows that that's where people are waiting to kill him. And that's the way that he knows he will be giving up his life as a sacrifice for us all. Uh, in fact, not only is Jesus allowing this, but he triggered it. He triggered it by the symbolism of entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? Which was a prophecy that the crowd understood and they understood that he is claiming to be the Messiah. And everything that he would do over the next uh, five, six days would be to point at himself as the Messiah. And he says that if they stop shouting, the stones will cry out because all of history has been pointing towards this one special event this spectacular event when the savior of the world will reveal himself and jesus is saying if if people don't say it you know he uses a hyperbole he says that if people don't say it then the stones will cry out nobody can stop this proclamation and there is this loud commotion. There is this excitement. Like I said, there is singing and, and people are waving palm um, branches and putting it, uh, you know, um, on, the, on the feet. And, and, and they, are, they are using uh, words from Psalms to speak about him. Uh, and in the middle of all of this commotion, see what, uh, what, what Jesus is doing in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem... And saw the city. So he's coming. Imagine him come down that incline from the peak of Mount of Olives. And you know from there he can see the city of Jerusalem. You know it would have been at that time shining in all of its beauty and glory. As the temple had been made. Right? It, it, the, the golden uh, domes would be glittering. And it would be so beautiful. And Jesus instead of joy at looking at the city. Instead of joining in the joy of all the people around him and the excitement of all the people around him, in contrast, Jesus is weeping. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Right Now this and the other instance, when Jesus wept outside the tomb of Lazarus, are the only two recorded instances of Jesus shedding tears. But, the words used are not the same words. Although in English, it's translated in both places as Jesus wept. But in the root language, in Greek, it is two different words. Here, the word uses eklosen. But there, outside of Lazarus' tomb, the word used is edakrysen. Now, the word that is used outside of Lazarus' tomb, which is edakrysen, is actually somebody weeping inside without shedding tears, right? And the crowd around, they've used another word to speak about the crowd around who was weeping outside Lazarus' tomb, including Mary. The word there is one for sobbing and, and, and just breaking out in loud tears. It's the kind of wailing that happens when somebody close to you dies. That's how the crowd around, including Mary and Martha, were weeping. Jesus was sobbing inside of him, quietly, right? Here, though, 
the word used is the word which was used for Mary and everybody else around who was crying, right? Sobbing with tears, you know, just, just wailing aloud. So there is this loud commotion that is happening around Jesus, right? Because they are excited that the king has come. The king will deliver them, right? No more oppression. But Jesus, on in contrast, is looking at the city and he's weeping and heaving and, and he's sobbing out aloud, right? The grief of death. And, and we'll know that uh, that's the reason why Jesus was weeping, right? Because he goes on to say that, right? He knew that God's judgment is coming on this nation for rejecting him. Um, just look at the next few verses, right? It says, and Jesus said, and maybe, you know, nobody else heard it because of the loudness of the commotion, but this is what, this is what Jesus said. If you, even you, he's speaking about the nation of Israel, looking at Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you? Peace, right? They were looking for political peace. He's saying that if only you would know what truly would bring you everlasting peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Right? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of their willful ignorance. Right? They rejected not wanting true peace, but only looking for temporal solutions. He was weeping over the lost opportunity because he said that it is now, that opportunity is gone. It is hidden from your eyes. He was weeping over their spiritual blindness because they did not recognize, he said, the time of God's coming to you. And he says, and he's weeping over the coming judgment because he speaks about the days that will come. So you see that Jesus is so compassionate, right? But yet he speaks about a judgment that is to come. And, and here we read about Christ's judgment on Israel. Who is, who is he to pronounce judgment, right? Other than God, no one can pronounce judgment like this. And that's who he is, right? So he is both a compassionate God, yet a just God. A God who meets out justice, right? Who lays out the conditions to be able to reconcile. And those who choose not to, they meet that end. And did this come true? Yes, it did. Shortly after, in AD 70, the Roman Empire did this to Jerusalem. Completely destroyed it. Exactly what has been written here happened and, and it says, history says that not one stone was left on top of another, right? This text that we saw here is so full of stunning contrast. We see enthusiastic welcome by the people, but we know that that welcome was shallow. It was very superficial, right? Because they were only get, getting excited with what they will benefit materially, what they'll benefit politically. They are welcoming him as a king. But look at the contrast. He's riding in on a donkey. There's loud singing, excitement, joy as they enter Jerusalem with him. People behind him, people in front of him, people rushing in outside the city to meet him. But you see Jesus, he's sobbing, he's weeping over the city and he's pronouncing judgment on it. And if we don't read the rest of the story ahead, then we'll miss the clear signals that Jesus had given till now. We'll also assume Right? If you are reading this for the first time, that Jesus will now take over Jerusalem and become the king. But we know, you know, as we read ahead, that's not what happens. Right? Jesus was speaking about something very, very different. So like I said, we look at uh, summarizing what do we learn about God or what do we learn about Jesus from this passage. And hopefully as you were listening, you were also either mentally or in your uh, notes taking some of the points down. The first thing that comes out so clearly is that, is that Jesus is divine, that he's God because he knew what was going to happen. He knows all things, right? And that all that happened to him was in fulfillment of very specific and precise prophecy. 
and he accepted worship. Again and again in different places in God's word, we see people refusing worship. God's people refusing worship, including angels, right? In fact, in the passage in Revelation that we just read, just a little before that, before, you know, it speaks about, the, uh, about Jesus coming on a white horse, um, it speaks about John the Apostle falling down before an angel because of the sight that he sees. And the angel says that, no, I'm not the one you're supposed to worship. So people, humans, godly people, and even angels refused worship. But we see this person in human form accepting worship because he was God. We see, secondly, the humility of Christ, right? Jesus is humble. He came riding on a colt. And, and, and just like in Zechariah it was written, he came gentle, right? So that, you know, nobody's afraid. And that's what it says. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Your king comes gentle, riding on a donkey, right? He's not coming to conquer. And we also see that Jesus is so humble that he did not get swayed by their, you know, their, their praise and adoration and, and all of the uh, shout, uh, shouts of acclamation that they were giving. He didn't get swayed, right? Because he knew the hearts of people. And he was also clear on his purpose. He was clear where he was going and nothing would move him from there. We also see God as somebody who is eager to save. We see his heart in the way he wails and weeps over the city and the people who had rejected him. Elsewhere in Luke chapter 13, Jesus looks at Jerusalem in another time that he had come to Jerusalem and he says, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's the compassion of God, wanting to bring us back into his fold, wanting to bring his people back into his fold. So we see that heart of God, a heart that's eager to save and yet a just God, right? That's his character. He will mete out justice to those who don't, uh, who don't repent. So there is a finite time for repentance. It's not forever. You know, uh, um, we shouldn't assume that uh, God in his love and grace will just, you know, go on forever to give time, right? But there is a finite time and he's returning as a judge. Even as we gaze on these things, I'm sure there are a lot of applications that would come out uh, from this, right? Just just see, as we, as we gaze upon the omniscience of God, a God who knows all things, Instantly, it, will, it should come to us that. That means that God knows my heart. God knows everything about me. I cannot hide anything from Him. I need not hide anything from Him. I can just go to Him openly with all that is inside of me, right? And I can openly share it with God. Things that I can't or I might, I might be afraid to talk to others about, I can share that with God because He already knows about it. He is somebody who knows the future. Right? Now, doesn't that give us a lot of hope that whatever he has said about our future is going to come true? Because whatever he had said in the past has come true as well. Right? Isn't that a beautiful uh, application? And that he is worthy of my worship. That he is worthy of my adoration. That I can approach him anytime. He is meek. He is humble. I don't need to be afraid. He is gentle. I can approach him any time and in any state, right? Um, that he's eager to save so I can rush into his embrace and that God would also give us the same burden for others to look at people with the same eyes of compassion as Jesus looked at Jerusalem. And also for us to think that God gives finite time for repentance. So we shouldn't assume that we'll have forever, right? And to be able to make amends with God, with others, when we have time not to wait for tomorrow. In fact, that was a key lesson that we had learned in last Sunday as well, right? In, in our group discussion, one of the sisters spoke about how she had been procrastinating, spending time reading God's word. But when she heard the sermon, she said that, no, I'll start today, right? I won't defer it because I don't know how much time I'll have. So from things like that to things like reconciling with those of, with whom you need to seek forgiveness, right? Uh, um, doing things for the Lord, right? Reconciling with God. These are all things that we shouldn't wait for. Don't procrastinate. Let's, let's take life seriously, 
because God is returning as a judge. Let's take eternity seriously because this life is not all that there is, right? We should live knowing that we are accountable to God about how we live. So what do we learn about people and therefore about us? I think the first thing that really comes through starkly is the superficiality of their worship. It was so, uh, it was just about them, right? It was all about them. And that's something for us to think about. You know, here were the people who were eagerly waiting for the Messiah. They were excited to see Jesus. But what were they excited about? They were excited about the miracles and the things that he would do. And therefore, in a very short span of a few days, they would go from Hosanna to crucify him. Crucify him. Yeah? That was the superficiality of their worship. And they would use the same words of calling him king now to mock him later on. Yeah? Uh, a very uh, superficial excitement, a very superficial worship is what we see. We also see a people who are unwilling to change, unwilling to soften their hard hearts. They're seeking peace, but they're seeking it in the wrong places, in the wrong ways. They did not recognize that the time of God's coming had, uh, had arrived. Yeah? As we see this again, there will be many applications that we can put into our lives. What, what is truly my kind of worship, right? Is it just on the outside? Is my excitement about God very sentimental? It's, is it all about what do I get out of it, right? And the moment that God doesn't fulfill what I'm asking for or what I need or my expectations, do I swivel so fast from Hosanna to, maybe we may not say it, but we live it, you know, to a way that we are just mocking Him as our king are we willing to change are we teachable right or have we hardened our hearts just in summary i'll put maybe three applications why am i following jesus and these are things that we can think about talk about in our uh, cell groups why am i truly following jesus something for each of us to reflect on right is it just a sentimental thing or do i truly want him as my uh, as my master in my life does my life reflect Christ's humility? The word says that be as he is. Follow in his footsteps, right? Uh, uh, Romans 8.29 speaks about how God is transforming us into the likeness of his son. So does my life reflect Christ's humility? Something I think that a lot of us, including me, struggle with. And then finally, am I taking life and eternity seriously? Or is it just about me? Is it just about temporal? Is it just about today and tomorrow? Or are we really thinking about eternity? What changes do you and I need to make in light of God's judgment? Um, as we close, right, while Jesus visited the land of Israel in that century, but since that time, through his holy scripture, he has continued to visit every generation. He has continued to visit each one of us. Jesus is the word of God, is what we read, right? So through his word, God has been visiting each of us. Now we can either receive him, right? And receive that gift of eternal life and live in joyful submission to him. Or we can reject him. Or our lives can be just a superficial uh, way of, uh, of, of following him. And, you know, if you understand that today is that opportunity, just like Jesus spoke, right? If only they would know that God has come to them today. If you would know that today is that opportunity, you know, our prayer is that you would commit your life to the Lord. Shall we all rise and we will close with a word of prayer. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us all look to the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for opening up your word to us, O Lord. We want to thank you, Lord, that we can see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his beauty, Lord, in all his humility, in all his submission as he, uh, as he went up into Jerusalem, knowing very well that he was going to sacrifice himself as the Lamb of God, a perfect and complete sacrifice once and for all. And yet the Lord uh, did not stop himself. Lord, knowing very well what he was about to encounter, 
He did not get swayed by the adoration and the praise and, and, and all the excitement that was around him. Lord, we thank you for showing us the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, humble, meek, uh, full of compassion, Lord, seeking to save the lost. Lord, we pray, O oh Lord, that even as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that you will move our hearts in worship. Lord, if there is anyone among us here, Lord, who is uh, living a life in superficial uh, commitment towards you, we pray, O oh Lord, that you will uh, use the passage today and, and that your spirit will speak into their hearts, Lord, to turn their lives around into true and real commitment to Master. Lord, that it won't be fickle, Lord, that it won't be just on the outside. And if, if there are any of our dear ones who haven't truly known you for who you are, the Savior of souls, Lord, not just Lord, a person who, who gives blessings material and on the outside, Lord, uh, not just a healer, but somebody who truly transforms our souls from inside and for eternity. And I pray, O oh Lord, that if there is any who hasn't understood that, any who hasn't received you as their Savior and Lord, we pray, O oh Lord, that today would be that day of salvation for them. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that it will change our lives here on. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Amen.